look, I'm not saying it wasn't a really good episode. I just that when she said that I wasn't excused, I just I can't tolerate that kind of backtalk from our regular hosts. I mean, like I just think that you and I have a good thing going, Greg. We should definitely just leave it to us two. Okay, you know. Okay. Well, no. So, here, so here's the thing, Toby. We have a small audience here. I've had two more responses to these episodes than I usually get. And the one person I can always count upon, you know, the guy that creates all of our content, he immediately said, yeah, yeah, Alex is just like, I want to know what you're going to talk about next. And I'm just like, well, okay, I I guess we got to do it for our fan. So if you could just, you know, hold your temper in check. I know that Alejandro is a disruptive influence, but, Mm -hmm. you know. That the important thing is that we are putting out content for our fan, oh, for our I, fans. Yes. Okay. So, um, so you know, whenever yeah. you get, whenever she gets here, it'll be fine. Um, we'll, I've we'll just... been here the entire time, you numb nuts. Shit! Shit! Uh, kill the call! Kill the call! Today we travel beyond the wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Wind Door. And as it turns out, the last couple of episodes where we reviewed, well, where I responded to 10 horror films went so well that we've already got a couple of other ideas in the works. Some of them are going to involve other people coming on. We have at least one occasion where Maureen said she wanted to participate. But because, very specifically, uh, Alex really enjoyed the dynamic that me, Toby, and Alejandra had together, I put out a new proposal for something, like, less thematic than the 10 horror movies, although we may come back to the 10 things that Greg hasn't seen yet. But here, we decided three movies. Each of us would pick one. At least one of us had not seen the movie prior to, and we'd see how long we would riff on that. And for today's show, we have two horror movies and a movie written by Aaron Sorkin, because, of course, I have to stay on brand. Yeah, Uh, guess which of us three suggested that one? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I I personally have been calling it in my head the triple movie (laughs) (laughs) trade-off. See, the way I view it is that this is a competition where at the end we declare a winner of who had the best recommendation. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, well, if we're competing, I think I win. What? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, technically you put two. Forget that. Forget that. It's not a competition. It's all fair. Well, no, 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 not necessarily. Okay, so for the listeners, the movies we are going to be discussing today are ZOM 100, a movie Bucket list of the dead bucket. I'm mm. sorry. Yes. I need to give the entire title. Zom 100 bucket list of the dead, a horror comedy that is based on a Japanese manga. Yes. Although as it turns out, there is an animated version of it as well on Netflix. I have not watched that. I have just watched the live action version. So that's what we'll be commenting on. 
Oh, we also have... this close to anime. We're not in the school of movies. This is the sort of off the books after school club that we get to just sort of hang out behind the bike shed doing film reviews of things that aren't usually covered in the school of movies syllabus. I would not be above potentially doing like an anime or a couple different anime movies or TV shows as a point of discussion. Obviously, a lot of that stuff is definitely going to be things I haven't seen. Um, but we'll come back to that idea. I'll, yeah, I'll have what to... was my movie? You skipped my movie. <laughs> I haven't skipped your movie. I just said no, you know, it, You know what happened? I interrupted and we got on a tangent. Get used to it, Alejandro. This is how we roll. <laughs> oh, no. What have I gotten into? <laughs> <laughs> Alejandra's movie is Company of Wolves. This is the one that she recommended specifically after I bounced off of uh, American Werewolf in London. We'll get into the whys and wherefores of why she picked it in particular, but it is a werewolf movie with an intriguing bent of like story within a story as well as other thematic elements. And then I picked Molly's Game, a movie, as the saying goes, based on a true story centered around an entrepreneur named Molly Bloom, who in real life hosted a series of underground poker games for wealthy celebrities, athletes, business magnates, and inadvertently, major members of white-collar and organized crime. Wrote a book about the experience after she was arrested by the government, and then went on to basically go up to Aaron Sorkin and say, hi, would you like to turn my story into a full-fledged movie, now the actual trial is over, and I can properly tell my story. But once again, we'll get into the weeds on that in a second. I think I'd like to discuss ZOM 100 first, but I'll put it up to the three of you. Which movie would you like to tackle first? Well, who's the extra third? Because there's only two others here other than yourself, Greg. This part of the recording was originally filled with dead space, because I didn't realize what I said at the time, and therefore didn't get what Toby was talking about. Because he was right, there was only three of us. Right? Right. Wait, what? What just happened? No, okay. I think what? we're going to talk about ZOM 100. Ignore Toby, everybody. He's mad. <laughs> <laughs> He's mad, I tell you. Mad. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. No. Okay, now it's time okay. to go through the looking glass on what a zombie story is going to be about. Yes. やりたいこともやれないくらいなら。ゾンビに食われた方がマシだ。よし。お前さ、これって内在でやすぎんだろ。
Toby, so. tell us more about why you picked Zom 100. Because of me. It was. <laughs> it was because of Alejandra. I was first aware of the property because of a video from Mother's Basement, a channel that specializes in anime specifically. It's not like how uh, Eyepatch Wolf started with anime, but since then that's really dialed back and he's sort of done a number of esoteric personal interests of his. But Mother's Basement, a very good channel, is a temperature check of what current anime is out there, both the really excellent and even just the intriguing ones that he would recommend. And it's a good way of putting stuff on your radar. I'd heard of Mother's Basement before only because of a Super Eyepatch Wolf video where he interviewed a lot of YouTube content creators asking about their experience with the media. But I'll definitely check his stuff out to see if there's something there. I like Super Eyepatch Wolf as a creator, but our tastes in anime don't necessarily overlap. And since I already have some hurdles to overcome in regarding to watching anime, I need a tastemaker who's going to help me overcome that. I'm not going to make any promises on what a future anime show might look like. It's probably not going to be any of the big ones, like One Piece, the anime, or the live-action version. But maybe I'll change my mind. As you'll find out, Zom 100 won me over. And that was unexpected. One of the things he had in the summer anime list for this year was talking about Zom 100. He had it as a thing that he, funnily enough, mentioned in both the good anime of the summer and also the the enjoyable trash anime of the summer. Mm. So I guess that speaks to the tone of the anime. Anyway, I thought, oh, the premise of that sounds kind of neat. Then on Netflix, Sarah saw that this film was on there and I was like, wait, that's the same name as that thing I heard about. Oh, this must be like an adaptation of it. And... She was interested in that because she has a good gut, but I was like very dismissive because I saw a live action anime thing on Netflix and I just... That combination is a bit of a coin flip, all right. <laughs> it really is. To be fair, to be fair. 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 Uh, this was not a like US or Western adaptation of the source material. This was actually a team of Japanese filmmakers involved in it. And then on the Discord, I heard you talking about it in very favorable terms, uh, Alejandro. And I, <laughs> yes, you. And I thought, okay, well, I was curious about this. And this seems like it's less commitment than an anime. And Sarah's already expressed an interest in it. Let's check it out. And oh by gosh, did we have a lovely, lovely time with this zombie story, which is not the sort of takeaway you get from stories of this type. It's very much not a genre that you think of and associate it with feel good or mm. something like that. And by the end of this, you absolutely do. By the way, I'm talking all of this without notes. I just kind of like the off-the-wall energy of these recording sessions when we have Alejandro present, so I just sort of wanted to have a conversation. I'm not reading an essay, 
both of you do interrupt or just talk your own points on all of this because I well, kind of want to have you know, a conversation in, in about it. The, in terms of the comparison, like zombie films, you would think of, you'd think like Zombieland or um, Shaun of the Dead. Mm-hmm. But even those mm. two movies are kind of dark at times. This movie oh, doesn't the really Dead, have time for dark. <laughs> no, I, no, the darkest okay. part of it is before the zombies show up. That's the brilliance of it, is that you see the little, how did I get into this situation opener? And what a brilliant opener, where it's a typical zombie setup of the main character, who I forget what the character's name is. Akira is his name in the manga. I don't know if that was it in the movie. It was Akira. I think it was Akira, yeah. Akira is running away from a crowd of zombies trying to survive. And in his head, he's kind of putting two and two together and just sort of you're hearing his frantic thoughts as he's being confronted by this scenario. And what I enjoy about it is that it's one of those zombie stories where they don't have it be that no one uses the word zombie or no one is aware of what a zombie is. As soon as they see it, it's like, no, these are zombies. Ah, fuck, I wasn't planning to wake up in the middle of a horror movie today. (laughs) As he's And I can't be late to work. If it had been any more tropey, Akira would have had a piece of toast in his mouth. Although I guess that doesn't work as well with live action. That's, that's literally it. That's yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. That's the closer, and it's a brilliant punchline to that mm. opening thing that immediately tells you what the tone of it is. As I say, the darkest part of it is everything between that little sneak peek of when the zombies show up and when the zombies show up you are seeing this really optimistic and enthusiastic young guy start work in, it's a business business. I forget exactly what their trade is. He works for a company that produces uh, movies. I believe they mostly work in commercials, like their video. That's right. He has a decent first day and meets a couple of people who seem pleasant enough. And there's one female colleague that he clearly has a crush on, but he's not crass or vulgar about it. He just is perfectly respectful, perfectly nice. Then at the end of the day, there's like a really fun after work drinks thing. He's having a great first day. And then afterwards, in what has to be the middle of the night, the supervisor says, all right, everyone, let's get back to work. And Akira thinks that this is a joke. It is not. Nope. (laughs) All of a sudden, it basically goes from, I don't know if I'm using the word correctly because I know nothing about the genre. It's a shonen anime. And now all of a sudden, we suddenly nosedived into Agritsuko. 25 years old! Yes. Ah, yes. wow. That is... Oh, Agrasuko. Okay, I, was, I thought you were talking about something else. <laughs> Sorry. Alejandra, <laughs> tell us what the something else is. I have the to... Something else was that uh, anime about gambling where, like, the girl gets, like, orgasmic about gambling. Oh. No, no, I wasn't... No. no. I'm talking about the animated feature with the panda who talks about how much she hates her job. Yeah, yeah, the Sanrio production. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm sorry I keep bringing up Eyepatch Wolf uh, this recording session. What's the penny in the jar? I don't think we have the... one specifically for anything that Super oh. Eyepatch Wolf does. Another Eyepatch in the wolf jar? Another crack in the anime wall? Another plan for the final gamer? I'll come up with something, but will you get it if you're not a fan? 
he had a video early on that talked about Agaratsuko and the yes, I context that, yeah. of that. I think it's no secret at this point that Japanese work culture is really not great. It is at atrocious. Least. Toxic yeah. as fuck. I get it. So the company that he's working for within the manga is referred to as a black corporation. I don't know if the movie calls it that because it doesn't really translate. Yeah, what does that mean? So, like, uh, I mean, it just means a company that? that's going to abuse you. And mm. I want to make clear here that the abuse is them expecting him to work overnight on his first day. But in a mm. typical Japanese company, him going out to drinks with his boss and all his co-workers is considered part of the expected required work day. Like, mm. he yeah. has to do that. He's not paid for it. And if he doesn't do it, he's not a team player. That kind mm. of imposition on your free time unpaid is considered good and normal. <laughs> mm. This whole opening sequence, we won't belabor it. I think we've made our point. Is It's him, I think, over the course of a year or even longer than that, just having all of that initial enthusiasm drained out of him. Various types of incident where the boss just gives contradictory orders or is demanding he do far more than he should. I mean, that's the it in a nutshell. But It really it, is just classic abusive relationship tactics, except at work. Mm-hmm. It, it, precisely. And Quick aside here, this is a zombie movie, so you should expect a certain level of violence and gore. For a zombie movie, that stuff is relatively tame, even though there's plenty of deaths throughout the movie. And as someone who is sensitive to that stuff, it was pretty tolerable for me. But I'm going to add a further content warning here, because there are elements of depression and despair in places in this quote-unquote horror comedy. And you should skip ahead about 30 seconds if you don't want to hear mention on the topic of suicide. The darkest part of it is when he is on his way back to his flat and he's at a train station and it has these barriers between the stop and the rails and he says these barriers are the only thing that's stopping me as a train goes past Mm -hmm. and it's it's a it's a dark fucking double entendre you could read it as barriers stopping him Mm. from living his life but in this case they're also barriers from stopping him from ending his life yeah. Yeah. And so after that, a zombie apocalypse happens, and everything <laughs> is immediately better in his life. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Hey, wait, 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 wait. Which was it? <laughs> Just stay tuned, North. The cinematography of this film is great because it's not just doing the bare minimum. It really thinks about the best way to present the internal feelings of the characters in their most accentuated form because everything feels lifeless and drab during that moment. And as soon as he has that realisation that society has gone to pot and he doesn't have to go to work anymore, all the colour comes back. Like All the thumbnails are of him Mm. just holding his arms up and it's one of the most exhilarating feelings I've ever seen and shared in in a film. It's such a delight to be able to participate in that. And from there, we won't do a play-by-play of the whole film, but I wanted to at least cover that 
opening bit so that mm -hmm. if someone starts it, they know where they're going to get to. Because after that, it is a film about what do you want to do in life? Do you want to survive? I don't want to survive. I want to live. That mm -hmm. It's a bit of a cliche, but who cares? It's a cliche. Yeah. Like, that is the film, but it doesn't care if it's a cliche. It actually wholeheartedly commits to it with sincerity. And it has a great central trio that develops over the course of the film, because at first you see Akira, and then he, at one point, saves his friend. From college? Bad... Oh, and this is important. Him and his college friend were on the rugby team together. Yeah. Sarah loved how that came into it because she was like, oh, rugby, I never really thought that that would be popular in Japan. And then once she sees him employing those hot same skills and tactics of rugby and navigating a whole enemy team of people who are trying to tackle you as you go through a zombie crowd, it works. He goes to save his friend and before the zombie apocalypse, they had a falling out where they essentially just picked up on each of their own insecurities because they know each other so well. And mm -hmm. I think they were both sort of going through some hard moments in their life. And our hero, Akira, wanted to save him because he wanted to apologize. He yes. Couldn't, he that couldn't bear the idea that he wouldn't have the chance to apologize to his friend. I had a lot of complicated feelings about this movie going through it. You can tell the complication as I go through my notes here. I do eventually want to address the idea that you said that the darkest part of the movie is at the beginning. I don't think that's true because I think there's a very important callback towards the end. But before we get too deep into this, I do want to talk about your words about the visuals of ZOM 100. I don't know as much about, is this taking place in Tokyo or is it taking place in another part of Japan? So as far as I know, this takes place in Tokyo, but you need to understand that Tokyo is like if San Francisco and Los Angeles were right next to each other. It is mm -hmm. an absurdly sprawling metropolis. A absurdly sprawling metropolis, but it is also very bright and lit up like the, uh, the movie itself implies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. no, it's a very okay. modern city. Okay. I found that I liked all of the mixed visual styles of this movie. I haven't seen, to date, many movies or media that show off the specifics of a modern eastern metropolis in a way that sticks with me, seeing it specifically as something apart from a western major city. That doesn't mean I haven't seen movies that take place in eastern cities, I just couldn't tell you any memorable visuals that stuck with me from, say, Lost in Translation, or Crazy Rich Asians, or Train to Busan. And it's not because I didn't enjoy those movies, but because it kind of takes a lot for something like that to stick with me visually. Something on the level of, like, the Badlands of South Dakota. I say this because I actually noticed the various cinematographic styles and changes the movie shifts in tone locale. Everything Toby was talking about, how certain moments were washed out and bland and other moments were as colorful and vibrant as a city like Tokyo should be, even though it was during a zombie apocalypse. Part of that may be because it's a subtitled movie and you have to be watching every second and can't just listen to the dialogue as I sometimes find my brain doing. But the important thing is that I was actually able to engage with more of the movie's non-verbal storytelling which is both a compliment to the creators 
and kind of makes me feel better about being able to analyze that sort of thing. The way that zombies are characterized through cinematography and movement and makeup, I think this is actually my favorite depiction of zombies ever. And that's saying a lot because it's wow. mixing a little bit of traditional and a little bit of 28 Days Later, but at the same time, mm. it's adding a lot of movement and cinematography and aesthetic to it that make them also a lot like a Silent Hill monster. And I kind of like that combination together, that sometimes they're fast and sometimes they're slow and sometimes they move like a humanoid should not move. This mm. movie's uh, zombies are taking quite a few notes from Train to Basan, which is oh, a Korean yeah. movie that yes. really made a splash in the zombie field like a decade ago. I did, in fact, mm. see that. I don't remember why specifically. It might have been because of something somebody said on the Discord. Train to Busan, in comparison, is a far darker film. So I would have to say... Much more traditional zombie narrative. Much more traditional zombie narrative. But the thing I find fascinating about this movie is how it manages to mix elements from A Shaun of the Dead and from A Train to Busan but it's also still mm. distinctly its own thing. There is a heartwarming aspect that goes beyond any of the comedy that Shaun of the Dead does. Mm -hmm. And I also like some of, I actually paid attention to the visuals and I don't, I'm not always good at that sometimes. I'm better at body language and things that relate specifically to people interacting, but choices like having Kensho, Akira's friend, dye his hair at one point as being like an expression of who he wants to be. The fact that Ahira yeah. tried that early too and decided that it wasn't for him, that's an interesting counterpoint going on there. We so still haven't even mentioned the bucket list. It's called Bucket yeah. List of the Dead because yes. he draws himself up a list of before I die from zombies, I should mm -hmm. do these things. Yes. <laughs> It's, There's an intriguing evolution of the bucket list in that yes, as he is about to get to that. As he, as he is free from all of his responsibilities, uh, uh, it starts out on a lot of, well, nobody can stop me from doing these things, so I'm going to do a whole bunch of things that I never got a chance to do before life and work started crushing me down. And it's mm -hmm. amazing and it's beautiful, but at the same time, we also see the change coming over his face as he realizes, okay... These are all relatively shallow things that I've been doing here. If I'm going to make a list of 100 things, I got to come up with something more meaningful and you know a little bit more difficult mm. to pull off. But I also like and that geez. it starts with the easy stuff because the easy stuff is what boosts you up, especially in real life, to be able to tackle harder things. Yeah, so it's almost like an inverse of doing a step-by-step to-do list where you start with some smaller jobs so that you can tackle the really heavy and important shit but in this sense it's what will be fulfilling for me i want to do these things that are a bit easier and more to hand because i get to experience the high of fulfilling them but it's not just that he he does the things and then feels a bit conflicted because they're somewhat shallow it's that they feel a little hollow because he's experiencing them alone. He's he, lonely. <laughs> he's lonely, which is one of those things that just feels very relatable because... Which you... is when he saves Kensho, and then around then he also meets mm -hmm. the girl we mentioned but haven't talked about. I can't remember her name. 
Miss Suzuki. Miss Suzuki. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, no. Miss, as in the, oh, the, Suzuki. the title. Su- Suzuki. Suzuki, yes. Yeah. Well, Suzuki is kind of, she wears like a uh, track outfit and like she's mm-hmm. ready for this apocalypse. She's in her like she's workout practical. gear <laughs> mm-hmm. and she's like very cold and logical. In the manga, she's shown as someone who like over researches stuff and watched like a hundred zombie movies when um. she realized the apocalypse was on. <laughs> mm. Whereas in this one, it just seems more like she's very pragmatic. And before the zombie apocalypse, she. I think was trying to be a nurse or she had done medical school, but I think that she probably lived a life. I forget some of the specifics, but to me, it felt as if she had to work very hard to get to this point in her life. I guess she put all of her eggs into the basket of if I can succeed at doing this thing, then it will all be worth it. And then the zombie apocalypse happened and that plan couldn't be. Mm. And then the plan so, changes for her to, mm. all right, I'm going to put all of my effort into surviving the apocalypse. But then she bumps into Akira, who's not really min-maxing his survival chances, but he is no. having okay. so much more fun than her. And she's kind of like, you can have fun? What? <laughs> yeah, it becomes this beautiful friendship because of her being shown that she can live she she can survive and live you can do both mm. but they do a very good job of having her be actually quite pissed with akira <laughs> when they first meet because it's like it's the equivalent of studying really hard for your exams and getting a good grade and then we've probably all seen book smart you know that opening thing of just what you got to have a social life and you also got the grades so that you could go to this place Okay, well, I guess I better start catching up on letting my hair down, and I'm going to do it really intensely. (laughs) (laughs) I know technically this episode will have all the Aaron Sorkin you can stand at the end, but it's my show to edit, and I'll put a penny in the jar when I feel it's relevant. I studied hard in high school and at Harvard and in law school. My IQ doesn't break the bank, and I wanted to do this, so I studied all the time. And I missed something, or it's like I skipped a year, because I never learned what you do after you think you like somebody, what you do next. And every everybody did learn. A lot of other people, anyway. I haven't seen Booksmart. I'll, I, I promise. Oh, I'll see Booksmart. Don't, don't hurt me. Um, no. <laughs> but hey, no. I'm about to get on the next list. That's like, I don't disagree with anything that you said there. I was reading something a little bit different into it, but I also, I I, I get that Alejandra at least knows more about her backstory through the, through the manga and everything like that. Yeah. She is a little, she is a little underserved in the movie in terms of characterization. It's not awful or anything. She, the actress is selling it. (laughs) No, the, the actress is doing a, a very good job. But honestly, the primary thing that I was reading into it there wasn't just the idea of him having fun and not taking this seriously and him basically teaching her that there can be good things to come out of this and not just survival. The whole dichotomy you were talking about earlier about balancing survival with actually being alive. Uh, This in some ways feels like a complete counterpoint to the fucking Walking Dead comics and TV shows and everything like that. Mm. We do what we need to do 
And then we get to live. But no matter what we find in D.C., I know we'll be okay. Because this is how we survive. We tell ourselves that we are the walking dead. More specifically, it feels like Shizuki sees Akira as being a typical guy that thinks that they can coast on just being a guy. And mm. so there, there's a feels like there's a definite gender dynamic going on there in that it's not just that she can't trust other people. She can't trust, perhaps, men in particular. Although at one point she doesn't think much of the two other ladies that they run into understandably so for various reasons but it's just like it's the trope of the hyper competent woman versus the more comedic fun-loving guy that we tend to see in a lot of various kind of media not just western media mm. or japanese media i'm thinking specifically of kate beckett versus rick castle in the nathan fillion police procedural or more recently in the show lucifer which leans heavily on that trope for several seasons before it starts focusing more on evolving the relationship between Chloe and Lucifer, as well as digging deeper into the celestial and psychological aspects on the show. Feels like it was heavily influenced by The Good Place. But realizing over time that each of them have a point that is important to hit home, but that there is a middle ground to go in between, and so therefore... The exploration that uh, of the, the exploration of that is very much a part of the movie that I enjoyed. Mm. Shockingly, especially like you, you showed me uh, a little bit of the manga before preparation and everything like that. The movie itself does not objectify women all that much, even when you're dealing. Oh, no, I don't think so. The, yeah, the, the manga definitely does that. Yes. Uh, you were yeah, that one, the manga is much more cheesecake. Yeah. Talking about it being a shonen, it's actually a seinen, which is, uh, I'm not going to get into the details. Point is, it's an older demographic than One mm -hmm. Piece. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But you, it doesn't oh, go out of its One way. One Piece doesn't have a lot of boobs on the show. Fair point. You're going to... <laughs> You're going to look me in the eye and tell me that One Piece doesn't have boobs on show. That's a separate Fine. conversation. <laughs> but like the frivolous flight attendants, they dress up, but there isn't a whole lot of skin on show. Even the girls in the love hotel who are naked because obviously it's a place for sex, but the way that the makeup works for them, it doesn't go out of its way to objectify the nakedness and, and it actually makes it feel like as opposed to, oh yeah these zombies are over here are rotting and have like jaws falling off but this one's basically just a naked woman with blood on her and like drooling or something like that no it actually like there's discolorations that mm. de-accentuate the nudity and more significantly when we're it when we're talking about the main three cast, Shizuki does not become a love interest. She is at least not, I don't know if it, it happens eventually in the manga, but over the course of the movie, Shizuki is considered part of the team without being intimately connected in a romantic way to either Kensho or Akira. And mm -hmm. I thought that that was pretty impressive given again, the source material. Yeah. 
And um, do we have much more to go on? Like, I don't really want to go I... into the third act. Okay. Yeah, well, it's good to leave some ground for people. I think I will cover the thing that I said I was going to cover, and I am talking so that I can give myself a chance to remember what I was going to say. Oh, yes. You brought up The Walking Dead a little while back, uh, Greg, and mm -hmm. that was my first point of comparing and contrasting when I watched this film, because after a couple seasons of the early seasons of The Walking Dead, I really couldn't get past the idea of what are we doing all of this for? I get it. There's the drama of how to stay alive in a world like this, but I never got a sense of what are we building to? What is the point of just, we need to find somewhere to hunker down and get resources and we need to figure out how to make our way through this next day. And Yes, there's a place for stories like that, but there's taking each day as it comes, and then there's just running on autopilot. The way that the survivors in The Walking Dead live, it felt like that is life on autopilot, or survival on autopilot. I did pick The Walking Dead quote from earlier for a reason, and that quote came from Season 5. This is after 61 episodes of the show, and to date, there have been 11 seasons of the show, with a total of 177 episodes. That's a lot of fucking grimdark. A lot of drama and strife without resolution, or even that much respite. I did a brief glance over the season synopses, and it's season 7 where we're finally introduced to the antagonist Negan, who ostensibly kills some beloved long-running characters that shocked audiences back in the day. This is the legacy of Game of Thrones. And it's not the kind of storytelling I enjoy. I didn't even make it through season two of the show before losing momentum. And in this movie, they are like, hey, we should go skydiving. Let's go skydiving. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it's not skydiving. It's the, uh, what is it, parasailing or something like that? Yeah, it was parasailing, yeah. But, it's something they had no business finding equipment for. <laughs> no, and it's things that just feel like it doesn't shortchange the threat of the zombies or the drama when it's needed that is traditional because, you know, there are victims of this and there are moments that characters will just take in the seriousness of it. But the fact that you can have that but also say, it's not just what do we need to do, what would we like to do? That's a question that the film points to and says we don't afford ourselves enough chances for that. And that's mm. the contrast between this and a story like The Walking Dead, where I feel as if the characters get to actually say, well, we have something we're working to. It's the bucket list of these 100 things we're going to do. And without spoiling anything, of course they don't get through all 100 within the space of this. There film. aren't like, even 100 on the list yet. Like, that's yeah. what's amazing. They keep adding things to the list as they go. <laughs> and I love that. I love that the idea is, well, we want to get to 100, but we can figure out what the 100 things need to be along the way. That and that's a... what life is. You're not just 
saying, right, I need to do this checklist. And then once I've done all of that, then I shall die satisfied. <laughs> it's like, I would like to do this amount of stuff. Maybe today I'd like to do yoga on a paddleboard in the middle of a lake. Yeah, that sounds nice. The overall theme of this, the movie is very blunt. Like if it has something to say, it will say it outright most of the time. There's only one occasion where you have to extrapolate a little bit in order to get the meat. Two occasions, to be honest. One in the third act that we're not going to get into fully. And one in the first act regarding Otori, the girl at work Akira had been idolizing. There's the act of crossing off the entry on his bucket list that is explicit. But also a subtler realization that we see Akira come to regarding her situation. But I won't get into it because we've already broken too much momentum. But Akira keeps saying... If I can't do what I want, I'd rather be eaten by zombies. That's so elegantly put. It's perfect. <laughs> you can't argue with that. Nope. And of course, the the earlier thing, that the, the whole cold opening that you were talking about, where the life that he had before was like being a living zombie. Now, mm -hmm. now that the society has collapsed, now he can finally live, but he still has to figure out what that entails, and he still has to continue developing the drive to go out and face life now that he doesn't have i mean it aren't that isn't that life doesn't have challenges ahead of it having a zombie apocalypse is a big challenge to overcome but it's not the same as i need to get money in order to survive this capitalist system or i need to I, i'm stuck in this job because it's i need it's a reset button yeah, exactly. It's a reset button that comes in that is out of your control that kind of helps you to reevaluate what you actually want out of your life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know much about the context of when the manga was written and what inspired it, but I can absolutely say that this film feels like a film that comes out post-pandemic. Oh, okay. It is I yes. really want to talk about the manga. <laughs> can I do that? Yeah, go for it. Please, okay, so please. this manga is actually a very recent Smash success. Like we're talking okay. a couple of years at most that it's been on the it's been on the market. So it's definitely yeah. It has it has been a one. massive success, and this is a pretty darn good adaptation of of like an opening introductory arc. Just so you two are aware, all the really weird stuff that happens in this, like the flight attendants and the shark, that's in the manga. <laughs> <That's>, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, it's in the manga. Of course, of course, it's, it's in the manga. So, I yeah. mean, they put in all the really weird stuff. They did some, like, reshuffling. The fish stuff and the his former boss stuff were kind of, like, combined together into one plot instead of two, which is really clever of them from a writing perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm actually familiar with the artist behind this one, but um, none of you are probably going to be familiar with but the old shonen piece Hide and Closer, where yeah. a boy gets a <laughs> you little... You assume far too much, Alejandra. You I'm have not heard familiar it, with Toby. it, no. <laughs> <laughs> You called no, my it, bluff. It, it's, it's a fine little piece where a boy gets uh, a magical friend who's like a teddy bear with a chainsaw and a gangster accent. That's very I need to track it down. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All of this is to say, this is a wonderful film. I wanted to share it with Greg, and that was my impulse for this is that i knew you had seen it alejandro and now that i had seen it i thought well 
we're looking for films, let's just complete this little triangle that we have set up the first two points of. Just to reassure people, even though this is covering the first arc of the manga and everything, you could watch this film and then check out literally nothing else, neither the manga, the anime, or even any potential follow-up sequels to this, and you would have a really satisfying experience. I think that the place it ends actually feels like it condenses the story beautifully. Well, if we're not going to discuss the ending, and I'm fine with doing that, although I hope we're not doing that for all of the movies, because otherwise that's going to affect my uh, my planned essay. I will say, <laughs> I, I did a little bit of research into this, and from what I can tell, ZOM 100, the manga, started pre-pandemic. But the, the movie itself came out, well, it's not really post-pandemic, but like it's as post as it's going to get right now. And given that they drop the word pandemic in the movie at like a critical juncture of it, it feels very much like it's talking about an aspect of living in a world after everything that happened in 2020 and 2021, where it feels like that there's a metaphor that it's going for that is not the primary goal, but is like in the background there especially when we're talking about the Japanese society and economy, but also Western economy and society. The idea that fear can keep us invested even in a decaying, broken system. That's something that seriously came up for me in the third act, and that's why I was saying I think that there is a, a darkness that returns when we start seeing the rest of the movie play out. To put it another way, one of my original plans with this episode was to bring up how elements of this movie made me think about New Century. Both New Century and ZOM 100 have ideas of what happens when an apocalypse destroys society. How we deal with it. How it frees us. What kinds of people do we want to be when the usual societal and survival aspects are thrown into upheaval. They both also address how those old values try to intrude back on the changed world because people cannot change, or because people want to get back to the privilege they had based in the world they knew. And I'll leave it there. But it ends on a very, as you say, heartwarming note of our team of three and how they are going to continue into life. I just really ended up enjoying this movie a lot more than I thought I would. There were definite elements in there that I see all the time in the few manga or the few anime that I've seen that were really kind of getting into my skin at first. But then I, I flipped and did a complete 180 and I, I would recommend this movie to anybody. I think. Yeah. The, the tropes are the good stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Good movie. Excellent. The very last thing I'll say about it, the main character, Akira, absolute cinnamon roll. <laughs> yes. Real fucking cutie. He's quite a bit taller than he was in the manga, though. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that totally makes sense. <laughs> All right. Panda or Greg? I think we should do Company of Wolves in the Middle. Yep. Uh, absolutely okay. A young girl feels her soul awakened the call of emotions she cannot name. This is the twilight world, where half-forgotten memories of childhood 
lead into a fantastic realm. Was it a wolf or a man you killed? When I killed it, it was a wolf. It turned into a man. Here, dreams become reality, and our darkest fantasies come true. The worst kind of wolves are hairy on the inside, and when they bite you, they drag you with them to hell. Say the Prince of Darkness is a gentleman. Gentlemen always keep their promises. What have you done with my granddaughter? Nothing she didn't want. <laughs> the Company of Wolves, where fairy tales end and nightmares begin. The Company of Wolves. Alejandra, tell us about Company of Wolves. Okay, well, first of all, it's the Company of Wolves. <laughs> you gotta remember that necessary article. I mean, Fair enough. I watched The Suicide Squad this week, and clearly adding a the just makes it an entirely different movie. So the Company of Wolves was something I heard about because Alex and Sharon did a video. Uh, they did a podcast on it. What am I saying? Uh, it was a movie I'd never particularly heard of. And I just uh, sometimes when they do that, I'll just skip the podcast and be like, I'll get to that after I see the movie. But in this case, I was like, I have never heard of this. I should listen to this podcast to see if the movie sounds interesting. And it did. What we have here is a very 80s, very British movie about werewolf short stories adapted by neil jordan the guy who did interview with a vampire and it's completely dream logic almost the whole movie takes place in a girl's dream while she's experiencing period cramps a fact that i missed the first time around which is probably partly why this whole allegory went under the radar for me at first so yes it is going to be a metaphor for many things about being a teenager Got Angela Lansbury in it, uh, being delightful, and mm. I really enjoyed it. The thing it's most similar to is uh, Labyrinth, mm, the Jim Henson yes. movie. Um, Confession time. I don't much care for Labyrinth. I like Labyrinth when it's Muppet nonsense. And when it decides it's going to be about its themes, I feel like I just start checking out. Whereas in this movie, the themes are all that I'm here for because it's pretty low budget on its werewolf effects. <laughs> Toby, you're absolutely right. We're not having her back if she doesn't like Labyrinth. No. Um... <laughs> you have burned your last bridge, Alejandra. <laughs> oh, no. Look, I didn't see it as a It's my fault. You're lucky you have a fan base who always asks for your return. So, uh, Greg, I understand you had some thoughts about this movie. <laughs> I had many thoughts about this movie. I know that Toby really liked this movie. Do we want to save me for the end? Or, Toby, would you like to speak about your experience with the movie so far? Uh, my experience, I think, is not too complicated. I think that I liked it for many of the same reasons that Alejandra did, I will probably have a better experience of articulating it by comparing and contrasting it against your experience. So 
please uh, do me the benefit of making my segment better by going in the middle, you fool. All right, fine, fine. I'll I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. Speech, Uh, speech, speech. Here's the crux of The Company of Wolves. I wanted this to be a movie that I enjoyed. After the poor experience that I had with An American Werewolf in London, Alejandra recommended this movie as a quintessential werewolf story. And as she mentioned, I knew that the Shaws had done a show on the movie. So when this was the pick she made for our review, I was all in. Watching it, however, I couldn't stay focused. I made copious notes, most of which I have since thrown out. I could definitely recognize many elements that I enjoyed in other media. The repurposing of Grimm's tales that has been done many, many times over in new media. Or the story within a story format that has also been done multiple times with, say, Neil Gaiman's Sandman and most famously with The Princess Bride. And I recognized right off the bat that they were using a similar symbolic bent that was a core dynamic of a hmm, favorite childhood movie, The Labyrinth. There were definite lines that I picked up on, like the mother saying, if there is a beast in man, there is an equal one in women. The movie has a female protagonist. It involves myth and even has a great side story where a witch gets revenge on a bunch of rich twats while the servants look on in glee. This This movie was using many ingredients that should add up to something I should enjoy. So why was this not clicking with me? When the movie was over, I immediately had to look the movie up on Wikipedia because I didn't understand the ending, and what it revealed to me left me more confused. I had entirely missed the point of the movie because I didn't understand that it was symbolism for a young girl coming of age. And while that's not a story type I have any deep familiarity with, The Labyrinth was certainly a version of that. As a child, I took that story literally, and as an adult, I could appreciate the more complex themes, particularly after Alex and Sharon went into it. This movie just felt fragmented and uneven. Alejandra mentioned at one point when I was watching it that it does not follow a traditional three-act structure. So I started writing more, trying to find the words to explain my reaction. I shared thoughts on the Discord. I listened to the School of Movies show to hear Alex and Sharon explain all of the stuff I didn't get. And it kept feeling like everything I wrote was unnecessarily negative. At one point, I even used the words, this is not a real werewolf story. And then Facebook, as I realized how fucking gatekeepy that sounded. I was turning into a hate boy. And then finally, at some point, I came back to something Sharon asked me. Casual, in that way she delivers many armor-piercing questions. What does the wolf mean to you? To answer this, I'm gonna have to go back a ways. It's 1989. I'm 12, 13 years old. Books are my life, and I'm seeking out new worlds and new genres. I tried Lord of the Rings and, sorry, bounced off Tolkien's writing style. But the world of fantasy still intrigued me, so I kept going. And I found authors that I enjoyed more, like Terry Brooks, Weiss and Hickman, 
Mercedes Lackey, Briggs and Novak. But my crown jewel of fantasy, my Lord of the Rings, was The Belgariad, a five-book series involving a trek across a fantasy world written by husband and wife team David and Lee Eddings, a quest to find a powerful magic gem to prevent the rising of a dark god. It had its own fellowship, Garion, who was one part young King Arthur and one part Will Stanton from The Dark is Rising, the bearded berserker Barak, who transformed into a bear to protect his charge, the clever and sneaky Silk, who was one part thief and one part rich spy, the hot-headed archer Lildoran, who was trying to be Robin Hood but had more bravery than sense, the knight Mandoralan, who also had more bravery than sense but at least had plate mail to protect him, as well as honor up the wazoo. The warrior Hetar, whose Mongolian aesthetic and mounted fighting tactics are enhanced by his ability to speak with horses. The red-headed spitfire Princess Sinedra, who starts off as the spoiled scion of a rich kingdom, but ends up more like Joan of Arc, raising an army to fight a war in defense of the young man she loves. The blacksmith Dernick, the earthy everyman from the farm Garion grew up on. And because every fellowship needs a great wizard, this one had two. One is your obvious Gandalf analog. Bearded, pointy hat, staff, lived for thousands of years, wise but also witty. The ancient sorcerer Belgarath. And then there was his daughter, long-lived herself, but looking like she was in her 30s. A strong-willed woman that raised Garion from a baby like he was her own the sorceress Pulgara. This was formative for me. Belgarath was my Gandalf, and Pulgara was my Granny Weatherwax. And among their many other powers, both of them were shapeshifters. They could change into many forms, but the preferred shape of Pulgara was an owl, and the preferred shape of Belgarath was that of a wolf. You can see where I'm going with this. This was not the only occasion where I read a piece of media that had a more positive opinion on wolves. I read graphic novel versions of both Jack London's The Call of the Wild and White Fang as a kid. When I was even older, I was exposed to ElfQuest, the graphic novel which begins with a version of Elfkind that rode wolves and formed familiar bonds with them. But this story, where a funny, wise, powerful mentor figure turns into a wolf and teaches our protagonist to do the same, that left a lasting impression. What I mean is, the werewolf is not a monster to me. Wild, perhaps, dangerous, definitely, but not something to be feared any more than anyone with the capacity to do violence. I mentioned a werebear heroic figure above, and while that was termed as a curse within the basis of the story, a beast-human shapeshifter was never framed as something inherently evil. Honestly, I'm kind of shocked that Guillermo del Toro hasn't done a werewolf movie yet. So that's the baseline. But now I'm going to go a bit deeper on the Belgariad in order to explain my response to the Company of Wolves. See, when your Gandalf analog has a daughter, that makes one immediately ask, where's the mother? Long before the events of the Belgariad, Belgarath would travel the world in service to his master, but took the form of a wolf during travel because it was just easier and quicker. 
And on one of these missions, he met a she-wolf that took a fancy to him. The two could speak intelligently, even as wolves. And while they developed a rapport, Belgarath felt understandably dubious with the idea of an intimate relationship with another wolf when his true form was a man. However, the she-wolf was persistent. And even though she was bemused to find out Belgarath was human, it only made her more intrigued. One day, she revealed that she had been paying attention to how Belgarath used magic, and she herself shape-changed into a new form. Long story short, Belgarath eventually married and had two daughters with a woman named Paladra. She started life as a wolf, but learned to take the form of a human woman in order to court the man she loved. She had intelligence and wisdom even as a wolf, and learned to be a sorceress herself just from watching Belgarath. So the she-wolf now represents to me an archetype of totemic feminine divinity. Saying things like this, it's clear I was primed from an early age to be a furry. But let's once more fast forward to the movie in question. Throughout the movie, our protagonist Rosaline behaves slightly off to me. You can attribute this to many things, the fact that the entire story takes place in a dream, or that the structure of the movie appears to be nested parables. Hell, no one in the story even has a name besides her, credited as Granny, Father, Mother, Huntsman, and Amorous Boy. As the movie winds to its final conclusion, we see Rosaline relate her final story to the shape-changed Huntsman, a she-wolf came from the underworld and was shot for no other crime than being a wolf. She was tended to and comforted by a priest that we expected would perceive her as a monster, even in human form. And the story ends with her decision to return to where she came from. When the villagers come to Granny's house and discover not only the shape-changed huntsman fleeing, but also a wolf wearing the necklace of Rosaline, that final story takes on new meaning to me. That's why the metaphor and symbolism of girl coming of age took me by surprise. All the interactions and Granny's Tales' warnings and the discovery of lipstick and a compact mirror in a bird's nest didn't add up to anything I understood. I was still trying to read this movie as a traditional narrative in and of itself and not as an allegory. And what I'm about to say may sound like I'm telling you that two plus two equals a bushel of potatoes, but I'm gonna say it anyway. The Company of Wolves is not a werewolf story from my perspective. It is a wolf wear story. Not a human cursed to be a wolf, but a wolf that can change into a human. Rosaline is the she-wolf that insinuates herself into the world of humans in order to learn more about them. She joins a family changeling style, replacing their dead daughter. She learns human stories from Granny, is clumsily courted by a young human snot nose, experiments with the clothes and trappings of humanity, and is finally pursued more thoroughly by a dangerous human huntsman that wants to consume her. But Rosaline was always more canny than her useful appearance would imply because she knew the dangers for what they were, even as she was still intrigued by them. And while the huntsman might be cursed to be a wolf, being a wolf is natural to her. And it is humanity that is, as always, the monster. 
Indeed, when the Huntsman reveals himself as a wolf, he is no longer a threat to her, as he now sees what Rosaline truly is. And having learned what she came to learn, she escapes with the other wolf to return to her world. Credits roll. Read this way, the movie makes sense to my brain. It might not be what the creators intended, but that often happens with art. This reading also helped me come to terms with why I was so dissatisfied with the previous Max Landis movie. The wolf is my totem. The wild mirror of the domestic dog I tend to associate myself with. The wolf has also been vilified in a lot of media as well as real life, with a counter-narrative only starting to take hold in the last couple of decades. So clearly, it touches something raw in me when I feel like the wolf is ill-treated in any form. Said another way, when faced with man's inhumanity, I prefer the company of wolves. I've talked all your okay. ears off. Toby, please now respond. Well, I know I said earlier that I would sort of compare my own response to it against yours. I can't really talk about how I responded to it in a way that frames it as if it's a counter-argument mm. or a response to yours, because I don't really think that that gels, because what you just spent a lot of time articulating was not about the film itself, it was your own response to it, how yeah. the ideas and images presented in it made sense in your head or struggled to settle at first before you found a way to draw a lot of it together and add yeah. in some of your own historical perspective on it and weave something that you could take away that is not necessarily what many would argue the film is about or what the events as presented even mean. Because yeah, I, I could say you believing that the thing at the end where she tells that final story of uh, the changeling wolf that comes from beneath the surface and then comes back above after her brief interaction with the world above returns to the world below you internalize it as that that same wolf came again to the world of man but more cautiously and infiltrated this family and did so to learn about this world and did so through the stories of granny lansbury thinking about it one could say more directly that the final tale is based on Rosalind's experiences in the movie itself. The harm done to the she-wolf is not a one-to-one, -one, where it is a combination of all the danger posed to Rosaline over the course of the story. But that's once more my brain trying to make sense of a story that's made to be interpreted by the audience. And I need to let Toby have the floor because I took up a lot of space already. I don't know that I believe that that is what the film is implying, just because no, there are other occurrences of actors and actresses playing characters within some of the various stories. Like, the sticking point one for me is the shortest one in the entire film, and the most non-sequitur weird one, the thing of the kid who meets the devil in the woods. And right, and then that's just completely out of nowhere, and like... It's like, oh, okay, we're telling a different story. And I didn't even understand that they were the devil. 
oh, he's getting something mm-hmm. from them. What did he want in the podcast? It was like, and, oh, it's a potion to give him hair on his chest and to give him way more hair. But the point is, none of that is elucidated. So my brain is like, what she, just happened? And, What's going on? Oh, the story's over. And what's the main character, the Dreaming Girl's name? Rosalie. Again, it's like Rosalie. I really should think of that. It's the only name they say in the film. Rosalie's actress plays the driver of the car who oh, opens the her? door. I don't think it I was. Yeah, I okay. It was. So it's this idea of just planting this subconscious into all these various ones. That story definitely feels like it's the one that lifts out. I kind of like it being there because it adds the whole dream feel of the film, that there is just one dream that doesn't really make any sense whatsoever. And Like I'll be dreams honest, don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh From my gosh, is that what that means? <laughs> yes. But, to me, that story felt much more like the sort of thing you would see in the TV series Goosebumps or something like that. Ah, Just yeah. like, are you afraid of chest hair? <laughs> waste not a want not. Ooh, you had a little bit and now you're hairy and you go, no, no, with the dolly zoom. And then you'll repeat the same shot and it will hang on you as you just pull your mouth a little awkwardly to make it look like you're distorting in some strange way. I also think that when you see Rosalie waking up to look in the mirror to see the face of the boy, it seems strange because to me, I couldn't quite tell if that was the in real world Rosalie or the one in the main narrative of the Red Riding Hood equivalent of her. That, like, that was one of the big st- stumbling blocks right at the beginning. It's like, okay, you come to a house, people are coming home, girl in a room, sister is being mean to her. She's asleep or not responding or something. And then she doesn't even speak. We immediately cut away to something else. And I was like, what? What? We don't even get a chance to know who actual Rosaline is before we're starting to deal with dream Rosaline. But I quite like that everything we know about Rosalie is either what other people who we know are acting quite cruelly and don't understand her talk about her or just her through the filter of her own dreams and her own internal thought processes trying to extrapolate and understand various complex ideas and things it's almost as if granny lansbury is this supercomputer version of her i forget the uh, terminology with the uh, ego the superego and the id she would be the superego tr- then. Mm. Yes. I don't know whose superego says, never trust a man whose eyebrows meet to get in the middle. But, uh, you know, what you got against eyebrows? Yeah, exactly. It's, it had a very much a feeling of like, you need to do these things in order to protect yourself. I would have mm. a lot more questions. Like, if you're saying don't trust men in general, that's one thing. But specifically, don't trust this kind of man. Because only the man with the eyebrows meet in the middle is actually a bastard that might treat you badly. Other than, say, like from the first story, where she marries a man, he runs away, she marries another man, the other man comes back and says, hey, I was away for three years, you should still be married to me, now I'm going to eat you, completely unfair on his part, Huntsman comes, kills the monster, and then hits his wife for no fucking reason. Okay, Alex- <laughs> can, can I talk about why I like this movie? Okay, yes, <laughs> please. Talk about how I, like this. I wanted okay. to say about why I, all, to, why I like this movie. Fun anecdote, I have gotten the honor of petting an actual wolf. <gasps> 
oh, well, now I'm fucking jealous. <laughs> yeah, it was a college thing. They brought some uh, relatively tamed wolves and they kind of walked them around the circle and we got to meet them, give them a little uh, scritch on the snoot. And I have, for my entire life, been terrified of dogs because of some trauma that I don't even remember because huh. I was three years old. Anyway, the wolves did not trigger my dog trauma because they did not behave like dogs. They behaved differently. And huh. yeah, so for a lot of reasons, I really enjoy the way this movie is a combination of folk tales, mythology, and also attempting to raise a daughter because what we have between the granny and the mother is granny is trying to teach her granddaughter all her survival tactics her survival mm -hmm. tactics are wildly outdated yes. <laughs> and she refuses to explain what any of them mean whereas the mother is like nah dad doesn't beat me and also like if he did i would probably beat the shit out of him back that was an unexpected interpretation of the line, if there is a beast in man, then there is an equal one in women. Obviously, I took it one way, but I kind of like Alejandra's take. So mom is giving much more <laughs> I think practical I take life advice. <laughs> I, I enjoy that Rosalie gets to share stories and she shares one with her mother, which means that we get a much more of a sense of how the mother sees life, interprets these stories and the idea of her actually having a conversation with Rosalie about the story as she's telling it or after she's told it. Oh. Whereas Rosalie tends to just let the story play out and then she'll ask her questions afterwards. But she is doing so less to question in the sense of throwing suspicion onto what the granny is telling her and more to just extract as much information from what is clearly a teaching exercise and she understands is a teaching moment from the granny that's and... why i love the story that rosalie tells so much like yes okay the girl cursing the foppish sh shitheads is mm -hmm. objectively fun but yes. the ending mm. where she's like her mom is like, well, what's the point of this story? And then she's like, this is why I made this story. This is the theme. And it's like, okay, so Rosalie is already better at this than Granny. Because <laughs> not only is her theme not about men beating up women, but taking back their own power, but she's thought about it. <laughs> yes. And the idea of her saying, and she would have the wolves sing to her and her baby each night and... It's like, well, why would she want that? It's like, the soothing was not in the sound of the wolves. It was in the knowledge that she could get them to sing for her. It was that power that she had taken back after she had been cast aside. So, And we get to the end of the story where the guy turns into a wolf and we're doing Red Riding Hood. My roommate yes. was enjoying this movie a lot when I watched it the other night. And she's like, oh my God, I just realized they're doing Red Riding Hood. <laughs> that was exactly what happened to me. I was just like, she gets the red shawl and I'm like, oh, son of a bitch, you got me. <laughs> But, um, and then that is when they have an actual wolf, because most of the wolves in this movie are just like a specific large breed of dog. But like mm. they do have two actual wolves with a wolf handler for some of the scenes. And that wolf is such a good boy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so good. Absolutely. That's what I like about that transformation sequence is that they have the drawn out thing with 
the Huntsman, who that actor does a phenomenal job of playing the scary but also kind of sexy. On, I, I'm impo- sorry, David Bowie. He's better at it than you. You're too sexy, David Bowie. I'm not scared of you. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's much more of an ethereal quality to David Bowie's uh, the fear of the Goblin King. Yeah, and, this, fr- this random this, French dude they picked up has got much more of a threat to him. There's a physical presence, and it definitely feels like often mixed feelings in terms of him absolutely coming onto Rosalie, and it's just like... Disgusting pervert! That's absolutely unacceptable! She's but, like 14! <laughs> I know! But it feels it's her, at it's least her a, dreams, it's her dreams. It is, that is the factor that makes it a little better is that we know that this is from her perspective so this is sort of like yeah this makes sense because the alternative is the fucking the amorous boy who mm. is such a nuisance he just deserves <laughs> to be punched yes well he did get punched years later in another uh <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> oh you should I, really I... recommend that to me it sounds like i'd enjoy it no, you might you might so yeah, um, this is a movie that I really enjoy. I like its whole like mythology dream thing. I like that Rosalie herself is like, I kind of like wolves though. Like everyone in the village is telling me wolves are trouble, and I'm just like they're kind of cute though. <laughs> I want to specify that I didn't dislike all elements of this movie when I wrote this entire thing. I was trying to comment on the movie as a coherent whole, individual parts of it. A lot of the stuff that you just mentioned were definitely moments that I like. I just couldn't fit them together into one narrative that had a consistent theme. Because they don't fit together, Greg. Mm. Okay, (laughs) well, okay, fine. I will come come to Greg's side here and say that I did share one takeaway with his, which is the wolves crashing in and reality Rosalie like waking up and screaming as the wolves crash through the window and the final shot is of the doll falling to the ground. I did kind of get what they were going for, but I also felt as if so much of the story had been of dream Rosalie kind of gaining self-assurance and the end of her story becoming a wolf felt like a moment of self-actualization. And to go from that to physical the awake Rosalie yeah. just being confronted with that and screaming felt a bit more like a horror movie way of ending it rather than an actual neat conclusion to the story that they had put together they could that... have ended it with just the girl in the well story like that probably would have been fine but you're, you're right audiences would have been like well what about the girl sleeping in the bedroom well, what happened to her it's like oh, well, that, I like... an answer for that you'll hate it though you'll hate the mm. answer <laughs> now, here's the only change i would do i really love the wolves coming through the woods and doing the reverse of what we saw near the beginning where the first dream, the first story is a, of her going into the woods, but the woods have a bunch of the artifacts that you see in her room, but possibly that's like That's not actually up. her. That's her sister. That's the yeah, actress who plays her sister. That's the thing is I didn't uh, get that yeah. I didn't understand mm. that opening sequence. I thought the wolves were chasing the dreaming girl, not the sister. No, she's punishing her sister for being a little pest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> But like going through that, it feels as if it is 
the film doing the inverse. It's the equivalent of in Sayonara Wild Hearts, the Claire de Lune playing at the beginning and at the end as you enter the dream space and then exit the dream space. You go through the same tunnel that you took to get there. And crashing through the window, we've looked through it to the woods and the woods have become the physical embodiment of this dream space where all of these stories are weaving mm. in and out, which is a great uh, symbolic aesthetic to incorporate. Crashing through the window feels like a great way of the ideas and images and feelings of all of that coming through from the forest into the waking world. I think I would just not necessarily focus on the waking Rosalie. I would probably just have it crash through in my edit, I would probably just cut her and her screaming out entirely and just kind of let it be that we know that she's going to wake up. We get that crashing through the window into this bedroom, that is what is happening. That way, it just feels as if all of the arc of the film lands where it's meant to be, not, oh, I'm scared by the thing. Ah! <laughs> but so, other than that, good really movie, great. right? Love yeah. the soundscape. Yeah, great movie. And oh my god, and all the little would... critters they've got—they've got like hedgehogs mm. and toads and rats. Well, I, I think you mentioned animal handler working overtime. Yeah, th- as you as you mentioned, they didn't have much in the way of production for scene, so they put all of their money into okay, let's get all of the animals we possibly can and make sure that the camera lingers on them. And say, look, we've got a snake, we've got a hedgehog, we've we got, got a peacock over here. Yeah, we got two mm. peacocks. That one story with the witch and the rich people and she turns them into wolves. And Alex and Sharon even mentioned, like, holy shit, we got a bunch of running dogs running down this peacock going, oh, oh, what just happened? Oh, oh, um, I'm fine. Okay. Mm, I'm preying myself here. <laughs> that was a great sequence. It is. Yeah, I really like it. And the soundscape and just fucking rocks. I said the werewolf transformations were a little cheap, but... There's three there's three different werewolf transformations. Mm. We've got a guy yeah. tearing his own face off. We get to watch like the dainty buckled shoes split from their feet turning into wolf's feet. And then we've got the guy with the wolf literally like jumping out of his mouth with the giant tongue. Mm. Honestly, that's part of the reason why I was reading the girl was a wolf all along into the story because we don't see her shape change. She's a girl, and then the camera is off her, and then she's a wolf, implying that maybe her transformation wasn't nearly as traumatic. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I will say that I felt like this movie was a little bit of a waste of David Warner. I I really like David Warner, and because the movie's not about him at all, it doesn't have much of him. I've loved him ever since... Tron. I've loved him. I I love him in some weird fucking movies because like one of the movies that I remember him best from was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember him that too already. (laughs) And and given that the movie is meant to be a woman's story, I can understand why. I was just like, oh, an actor that I recognize. Are they gonna well okay, there was that little thing about them hunting the wolf i guess okay fine yeah that's that's a neil jordan thing he just likes to hire really well-known british actors to Mm. do stuff okay like i watched Mm. breakfast on pluto for gay month last year or this year i should say 
And Jesus Christ, he went through everyone. They get like a scene or two and then you're done with them. You know who this film didn't waste? Angela Lansbury. No, well, they, they made well, good use out of their Angela Lansbury. I just wish Angela Lansbury played a character that was... I mean, she was enjoyable to watch, but she, unfortunately, mm. she wasn't very sympathetic. Again, she was actually an asshole to the priest. And normally I'm all about being assholes to priests. But given the whole story at the end where the priest is the one person that doesn't turn the girl away, the priest is not the asshole that the grandmother believes. Although I suppose that wasn't the actual priest since it was just a story that Rosaline made up. But the fact that she cast the priest in a sympathetic light still, I feel, says something about how she perceived the priest. Although good on um, her for calling out that the priesthood are full of, like, awful people. <laughs> no, no, no. I, in, in general, I agree with her. The Catholic Church does not make mistakes. Please, what about the Church's silent consent of the slave trade? And its platform of non-involvement during the Holocaust? All right. Mistakes were made. I mean, any character who played by Angela Lansbury, whose introduction is, you're at a funeral and you're sad about your dead sister. Here, let me give you this gingerbread man that I have in my purse, because that will help you feel a little bit better. Who comes to a funeral with gingerbread men in their purse? Look, grandmothers it are fucking prepared, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and then, at the end, I said that this film doesn't waste Angela Lansbury until it fucking wastes Angela Lansbury. That werewolf smashed her head like it was made of porcelain, because it was. Yes. So, that, so that's a fun movie. Really recommended for anyone who likes a bit of a spooker. I considered putting in a final comment here about media that I thought used the medium of dreams better, or alternatively why I felt The Labyrinth was the better version of The Company of Wolves. But I'm going to hold back. Alejandro really liked this movie. Toby really liked this movie. And saying more feels like an abuse of my editorial powers. Especially when I already had a huge speech in the middle. This podcast is a collaborative experience. And I need to know when to stop my internal voice. Telling me I need to over-explain my thoughts on everything. And that brings me to my movie, so now... I know that you have something to say, Alejandra, so you can tear me to shreds if that's your uh, wherewithal now. But... Oh, I'm not mad at you, Greg. <laughs> oh, well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I, I, I get that you may have opinions about specific characters in the movie, and I'll be very intrigued what you have All to right. say. Now, let me just do this uh, before we get started, just to get ahead of it. Okay. Draw in the jar, and let me just empty my entire wallet full of pennies, and... Okay, that should probably cover us for the session. All right, uh, Greg, please continue. All right, well, okay, so... Yeah, you hmm. gotta tell us what your movie is. <laughs> I'm Molly Bloom. Do you know about me? I read your indictment after I got your call last night, and I bought your book. Do you understand that you are charged with operating an illegal gambling business? Are you taking me on as a client? I don't think I can convince my partners to take a flyer on the poke princess. If you think a princess can do what I did, you're incorrect. I'm getting that you don't think much of me, but what if every single one of your ill-informed, unsophisticated opinions about me were wrong? I'd be amazed. 
This is a true story, but except for my own, I've changed all the names. Hey, Molly, my weekly poker game is moving to the Cobra Lounge. You'll help run it. I was in a room with movie stars, directors, and business titans. They were going all in, all the time. Thank you, Molly. This is for you. Thank you so much. Stop paying you. As my assistant. You firing me? I'm not firing you. I'm just gonna stop paying you. You get paid once a week from the game. It doesn't seem fair. You're gonna stop paying me because I'm making too much money doing my second job, and if I say no, I'll lose both jobs because it doesn't seem fair. You don't have bargaining power here. You are unimportant. You know how many witches were burned in Salem? How many? None. They didn't burn witches. It's a myth. They hanged them. The humiliation had given way to blinding anger at my powerlessness. I wasn't gonna wait before I put a plan in place. I'll be hosting a game in this suite every Tuesday night. First buy-in, 250000 That's gonna make noise. Let's play. We spent eight years in Hollywood and two years in New York running the world's most exclusive and decadent man cave. Have you seen the other names in your indictment? Come on, Marty, just out deep into the Russian mob. Where are you? Your exposure's crazy. You got 2.8 million on the street right now. You're gonna get blown up. You managed to build a multi-million dollar business using not much more than your wits. I'm about to be charged in federal court. Well, nobody's perfect. There's a new offer on the table. Complete immunity. We hand over the hard drives. You've seen what's on those hard drives. Families, lives, careers will be ruined. Why are you in this alone? Where are the people you're protecting by not telling the whole story? I'll tell them everything they want to know about me. About me. That's it. Molly's Game is a story that was based on something that actually happened with an actual person. And unlike a lot of occasions where biopics are written by other people after the fact, uh, in this particular case, these events that took place over the late 2000s and early 2010s involve a young woman who lives in a uh, overachiever family with two brothers and an, an A-type father that demands the best from his kids and is a psychologist to boot. So he's like he's a double asshole. threat. Yeah, he's a double threat asshole. We begin the story with her attempting to be an Olympic champion skier, failing at that. And now that she doesn't know what to do, decides, okay, I'm going to experience life a little bit and discovers that she has a talent for running poker games. And unfortunately, she's so good at it that she keeps running into powerful male egos along the way. And while she does her best to navigate that and maintain her own autonomy, unfortunately, these are a lot of very influential and rich people that keep fucking her over until it's the government's turn to fuck her over. And that's where we lead to the primary theme of the movie, wherein we get to see Jessica Chastain play opposite Idris fucking Elba with all of the goddamn rapport and chemistry for days as she tries to get out of this horrible legal situation that she's gotten herself into and going up against it with her lawyer as he is trying to protect her from the fallout of her actions. That's the baseline of the narrative of the movie. In the paratext, as I earlier alluded to, the real-life Molly Bloom went to Aaron Sorkin herself after the conclusion of the real-world trial, and asked him to direct and write the screenplay 
based on the book that she wrote prior to the trial, in order to support herself after the government seized all her assets. The screenplay also contains the conclusion of that trial, as well as dramatized depictions of her early life and conversations with family, friends, and business associates. Much of it, but not all, based on information provided by Molly Bloom. Because it is Aaron Sorkin, it is talky. It uses all the goddamn words. and So many words. <laughs> and that is kind of my jam. There's definitely plenty of words in The West Wing, which was my first experience with Aaron Sorkin. And there's plenty of them in anything else that he's ever done. A Few Good Men, for example. As I mentioned earlier, I was raised on books. So any piece of media that uses words to explain itself, that kind of is the medium that I understand best. And so therefore, just having her explain to me what's going on as the drama plays out really just sort of hit my sweet spot in general. And that's the beginning of it. The, in the third act, there are some legitimate moments between Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba that bring me to fucking tears. It made me feel all the feelings. I rewatched it a couple of times. The first time I saw it, mom just sort of had it on in the background as I was, you know, cooking a meal for her and taking care of a few chores. And I kept listening to it and be like, mom, could you start this movie over from the beginning? This seems like a movie I'm really interested in. And I sat there and watched it with her for the run of the movie before going home that evening. And I was entirely captivated. And because it's a movie that not many people have heard of, I don't think it was ever released in theaters. It won a bunch of awards due to being released at like Sundance or something like that. But like, this is one of those movies that because it didn't get a general theatrical release, as far as I can tell, just most people have not heard of. And therefore, I wanted to be able to share it with other people. Correction. It was released in theaters in very late 2017. It cost $30 million to make, and it had a worldwide box office of $59.3 million. So, not a huge success. Even if it was well-praised by critics, nominated for many awards, and won five. None of them ones you've ever heard of, though. Not just because it was Aaron Sorkin, because I do not like everything Aaron Sorkin. I tried watching The Newsroom, I bounced off of it, so as far as I'm concerned... Sorkin is just a few good men, several seasons of The West Wing, and this movie. Yeah, what did you think of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip? I never watched that. Uh, I, watched... I, don't rec- I don't recommend it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I watched a little bit of the sports show that he did. What was it, Sports Night? Because that was kind of a little bit of a beta for what he would do later with The West Wing. There were several personality types that were similar. I did not get into it as thoroughly because I don't really care about sports all that much. But you can definitely see it as being like, this is what he was starting out with. Then he did the West Wing. That's when I got invested. Not simply because of the discussions of politics, but just because of the interactions of characters at play. I've well, always... you, say, you say you don't like sports. Let me tell you something about this movie, trying to having to walk uphill to get my attention. I do not give a shit about poker. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's Well, I mean, the movie's not really about poker. Poker is just the way that it introduces the, the host of characters to you. But mm. fair enough. If, the, if poker was a barrier to your enjoyment, 
I understand. For a film that isn't about poker, a good chunk of it is kind of about poker. Like, at least in terms of the dialogue and you have to just be following Sorkin's dialogue and just be like, okay, yep, no, we're talking about this. I am with you and you're talking about you had scented candles because that induces people to gamble. Sure, I'll believe you. I'm sure you did your research before you included that line. Yep. Oh, and we're <laughs> talking about something to do with this and that didn't really get further explained, but that's okay. We're on to the next bit. Let's keep talking. We're walking and we're talking. And, <laughs> if, you like, uh, if you like the sound of Jessica Chastain's voice, this is basically pornography for you. <laughs> you could have the audio track of this film on as ASMR. Like, not all of it, but a good chunk of it. You could just have it on and fall asleep to it. I was yeah. already invested in Jessica Chastain after having seen her in Crimson Peak. But oh, yeah, <clears throat> I do not remember, in hindsight, if I saw Molly's Game before or after I saw Crimson Peak. I was half, quote-unquote, assigned Crimson Peak because I needed to learn more about Gothic for early episodes of Through the Window. And in Crimson Peak, she played Lucille Sharp opposite Tom Hiddleston as Thomas, her brother. The energy between them and Mia Wasikowska was electric. In this one, like, she plays a less unlikable character, but she definitely has a strong personality, and the only reason why it doesn't become more grating is because most of the men in the movie are also complete dipshits. So... An intriguing side note here, while the character that Idris Elba plays does not exist, Sorkin decided mm -hmm. that he wanted one completely fictional character that was based a little bit on some of Molly Bloom's lawyers, but in terms of all those conversations and, and, and the personalities and everything like that, he was completely made up to oh. specifically play up the Molly Bloom character, yeah? Oh, so the best character in the movie is fictional, is what you're yes. telling me. <laughs> <laughs> the best character, well, yeah, but but he is the best character in the movie. It, it's basically, what was your quote at one point? that you, you, It wasn't what you said, it was what your girlfriend said. Roommate, that, roommate. My roommate you, said to me, I want Idris Elba to uh, defend me from myself. Yes. <laughs> that was a great line, so I wanted to make sure it got into the uh, the edit there. In a way, that's kind of what a big climax of the movie is, is him saying, look, I've heard the stories here. Let's actually just kind of evaluate you and say that I'm not going to blow wind up your ass and tell you that you are a shining beacon, but I see you and I see all of the effort that you are going through. I absolutely want Idris Elba to kind of evaluate me and then in a courtroom just say, look, he's trying his best. Like, <laughs> it's a I, very soothing feeling. It is, yeah. a very, it is a very soothing feeling. I love, I, I think it was partly Idris Elba's presence that seriously got me on board. But I'm also one of those people, as I've said before, that kind of really loves people that know their shit explain things to me. Mm. It's why I love Josh Lyman and Toby Ziegler and Sam Seaborn explain politics to me. It's why I love Alex and Sharon and Victoria and other people explain other movies to me. And so therefore, Jessica Chastain explaining poker to me, I was like, yep, okay, you've got my complete attention. I listened to two and a half hours 
of Dan Olson explaining NFTs to me. And I've my listened wife, to that like 20 times. <laughs> yes. And my wife is sick of me having it on in the background, but I can't <laughs> help it because that is where I live. Oh, so Interstellar character does not exist. Player X does not exist. He is actually a conglomeration of different people. Yes. But the vibe that Michael Sarah was trying to go for, and the fact at one point where Player X calls Molly up and saying, you're to so totally fucked. The real-life person that actually did that and had a personality conflict with Molly Bloom was Toby fucking Maguire. See, I'm really glad that you added Maguire there, because I thought you were just going to accuse me of doing something. <laughs> Toby Maguire Spider's Mans? Sp Toby Maguire's Spider's Mans is apparently a very poor loser at poker and was very pleased yeah. when someone took the poker game away from her for whatever reason happened in real life. And I think at one point asked that she beg for something like a seal, allegedly. Goodness uh, gracious, I yeah. was convinced Michael Sarah was doing like Mark Zuckerberg. No, no, mm. and no, and, but and and that's one of the big things right there, then, is that Michael Sarah in this movie actually kind of scared me a little, and I did not expect Michael Sarah to be able to pull that shit off. All right, well. So I'm going to go off on a bit of a screamy rant here. Okay, go right yeah. ahead. You have the floor, Alejandra. Scream at us. Not so, too loud. Don't, 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 talk don't and, spike the... Walk and talk. Walk and so talk I this. don't particularly like Aaron Sorkin's way of handling dialogue. It takes a specific actor to deliver it, and mm. Idris Elba nails it, whereas I think that uh, Jessica Chastain's narration doesn't. Jessica Chastain, when she's just talking to someone is fine, but mm. most of the movie is her narration, and I don't like it. It's flat, it's dull, it doesn't give me anything to cling on to, and I just have to watch these guys flail around at poker and talking about all, like, the financial crimes they're gonna commit in around 2006. Mm. <laughs> oh, we're gonna commit so many financial crimes. <laughs> yeah, but... The part that really got my britches in a twist was Kevin Costner mm. as the disappointed father, Larry yeah. Bloom. Oh my God. He made me so angry with his rise and grind bullshit about how like winners don't quit when she's like just she's a 12 year old goddamn girl. She gave herself rapid onset scoliosis as far as I can tell from skiing too hard to please this man. She got a massive back surgery in order to fix it to keep skiing to please this man. Yeah. But he drops out of the movie because, like, the ski stuff is mostly set up in the beginning for her emotional climax at the end of the movie. It doesn't really come up in the middle. So he shows back up while she's, like, just tooling around New York City trying to, like, clear her head. He just shows up. He's been out of her life for years because he was a cheating motherfucker and he's mm -hmm. uh, divorced from her mother, I assume. Yes. And he's a therapist. Yes. I hate this man so 
much. He shows up and is like, I'm going to cram three years of therapy into like 10 minutes. And it's like, no, you're not. You're going to try and emotionally abuse your daughter into realizing that you suck, actually. My reason for mistreating you was because you knew that I was shitty. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is that an excuse? Are you giving yeah. me an excuse? That's terrible. I hated him so much. And the whole thing where it's like, oh, God, I got so mad. I was screaming at the television and my roommate got really, like, nervous because she's not (laughs) she doesn't like screaming. And I was trying to, like, reel it in. And I have a quote. I have a quote that I wrote down because this is something I said to her. I said to my roommate, you have a therapist. I'm screaming at a movie right now because I don't have a therapist. I should probably get one because, oh, boy, did this Larry Bloom, Kevin Costner motherfucker trigger some of my dad issues? Mm-hmm. My dad's better than Larry Bloom, though. Oh, boy, that's not hard to I do. I hope so for the sake yeah. of your back, if nothing else. Talking about bad dads here, oh. Larry Bloom is not as bad as Thanos, but, like, that's a steep fucking cliff. That is a um, steep fucking drop off of a cliff right there. Yeah, Larry Bloom is terrible. There's a scene where young Molly Bloom, she says uh, Freud was an idiot to mm-hmm. her father, who is a psychologist and cares about Freud. And the whole time, I'm just like, look, I know she's doing this to be a little shit just to piss off her dad, but she's also right. Yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Freud was an idiot. He didn't start as an idiot, but he realized he needed to appeal to men to make money. So he turned his back on basically every piece of information he had collected and just decided he was going to lean into the misogyny. I've had to talk about Freud a lot with my chapters on like the uncanny and whatnot for my thesis but it's telling that like everyone's like oh you you definitely need to address and talk about the ideas of the uncanny that freud established and then it's like you say that at the beginning and then you move on because the real conversation happens after the fact so everyone knows that this isn't the definitive word we talk about it because it's historical and yes i appreciate and acknowledge that but then we realize can we have the real conversation now that we've put in the legwork to do the token freud is like the freud is I'm... basically hp lovecraft for psychology sure formative important horrible yeah. Do not copy. (laughs) Yeah. I tend to look at both Freud and Jung as being like the same way I look at old world mythology and that the tools that they present can potentially be useful in the right context. Do not only have those tools in your toolbox. You say Mm. old world mythology. Those guys were active in the 20th century. Right. But well, I'm, I'm, I'm using this as a metaphor. I I'm saying this is the mythology of psychiatry, not the mythology of society. Mm. You know, we live in a society. Um, We do indeed live in a society. So there's like one specific line where Larry Bloom is like, was I a good dad? I don't know. I've got a son who's a a successful uh, chemist and I've got another son who is a a world-class Olympian. And I just wanted to reach through the screen and throttle his stupid fucking face. Because no, your children managing to succeed at capitalism does not mean you were a good father. It means you were a good life coach 
I don't disagree with Alejandra in the slightest in this regard. I am not going to try and defend Larry Bloom. And just like she said, the fact that he is a therapist makes this situation all kinds of problematic. I find myself wondering how much of Molly and Larry Bloom's conflict is real and how much is dramatized. Among some of Aaron Sorkin's issues are his love of powerful, flawed fathers and father figures and mentors. You can see it everywhere in The West Wing, in characters like Josh Lyman and Leo McGarry, and even President Josiah Bartlett himself. He also sometimes has problems with female characters, though I expect this was somewhat counteracted thanks to Molly's personal input on the screenplay. My biggest problem was the subversion of the role of a therapist, and how that affected both Molly's youth and this third-act confrontation. Because I know that Sorkin can write a good therapist character. Last year, Sharon Shaw was a guest on the Two Shrinks podcast, with Hunter Mulcair and Amy Donaldson, discussing good and bad examples of therapists and psychologists in media. And right near the top of the list of great depictions was the character of Stanley Keyworth, a trauma therapist portrayed by Adam Arkin in several episodes of The West Wing. What was the diagnosis? I'm sorry? You said you diagnosed me after five minutes. What was the diagnosis? You have post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, that doesn't really sound like something they let you have if you work for the president. So, can we have it be something else? Seriously, I think I, I, I think you might be wrong about that. I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult. I don't think you are. I know that I'm giving you cocky answers. I Listen, should be. You know, you want me to talk about my feelings? No, I don't, Josh. The last thing I want you to do is talk about your feelings. I think if you heard a tape recording of this day, you wouldn't hear the word feelings. What we need to get you to do is be able to remember the shooting without reliving it. And you have been reliving it. So this would seem to suggest that Sorkin knows how therapy works. And one way it does not work is if the therapist quote-unquote tells you the answers. They might be Larry Bloom's answers, but those answers are filtered through his own experience and say more about him than they do about Molly. Honestly, I'd want feedback from Hunter or Sharon or someone else in the industry, but it feels more like this interaction is not about Larry Bloom finally trying to help Molly, but rather someone confessing their own guilt for everything they've done. And it's up to Molly whether she will, but her forgiveness or not is not the point of the movie. As Alejandra points out, He's barely in the movie. Yeah, I'm that's, so that's the thing. He's such a strong flavor, isn't movie. he? He is yeah. a very strong flavor. But the point is, is that the movie is about her. So her relationship with her father is important to that, but it's not the emotional heart of what's going mm. on there. So but it is supposed to be like the emotional climax of the movie. Like the plot climax of the movie is the judge going easy on her. The emotional climax is her talking this shit out with her dad and i i got real no. mad at it aaron Honestly, sorkin's I... dialogue is oh god i it, another day another dollar as it mm -hmm. were there's good stuff in this movie there's good stuff 
I disagree uh, that I disagree that the father conversation is the emotional climax. I think the emotional climax is the scene that happens next, the moment where Molly Bloom says, because it's my name. Her relationship with Jaffe is the emotional climax. And I believe this because if Larry Bloom is the bad dad, then Charlie Jaffe is the good dad. The one that has been actively trying to protect Molly, but also ultimately respects her and her choices. It's about her asserting, after everything that's happened, her own mm -hmm. agency, even if it leads to her downfall. She has to continue to be the person that she needs to be, even if there's consequences for that action. She cannot stand- I also stand... got a little mad at that. <laughs> oh, okay, interesting. Uh, just, just a little, because I agree with you that like it's supposed to be about her self-actualization there, but she frames it as defending her name. And I'm mm. like, you can just get a new name. But I also I appreciate feel like that's a, that- like she... logistical, practical <laughs> fixation. I think it's much more the case that like, even if she changes her name, it's more- the name is not it's literal. Her. The name it's, is it's symbology. Her. That's what she, because she'll she know is... that all of that was her. Is yeah. But also, I thought it was real goddamn funny at the end of the movie when her brothers showed up and were <laughs> like, we're totally characters, right? It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sis. At the end of the day, this is why I love this movie. Not just for the emotional stuff, not just because Aaron Sorkin explaining things to me tickles my sweet spot. Oh, it's, it's, that's a funny sentence, all right. <laughs> I was going to say, what you do on your own time is your business. The reason I love this movie is that this is one of those few occasions where someone gets to tell their own story. And because Lin-Manuel Miranda is a big West Wing fan, I get to play this. There was a bit of irony in the scene where she's talking to Idris Elba about the movie rights for her story while we're watching the movie that clearly got the rights sold at some point. <laughs> That's the point is that she found the per she found the person she wanted to tell her story. Therefore, even though Sorkin wrote the screenplay, the screenplay is all based on information that Molly herself provided about her life, both from her book but also from stuff that was never in the book because the movie includes events that hadn't happened by the time the book came out. And so therefore, the fact that the entire thesis of the movie is a woman struggling and clawing and desperately trying to hold on to her agency, both in the story and in the paratext of the story, regardless of the fact of how it ended up, that still feels inspiring to me. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did not... Oh, look, I didn't hate this movie. There's a lot of really good actors. Many of them are given really good speeches. I don't love everything Aaron Sorkin does, but, like, come on, he's good at that. And mm -hmm. Idris Elba gives an absolute fucking banger of a speech at one point, talking to the federal prosecutors. <laughs> it was a great speech. And I even love the fact that Graham Greene, a man that does not get enough screen time got to come in, play a role that was not a Native American, and deliver a banger of speech of his own when he uh, reads out his call in the Molly Bloom's case. Yep, so, I was also glad to see him. 
Toby, I've I kind was... of run roughshod over you. Toby, you got No, no, thoughts? no. I want. I am here for it. I am always <laughs> glad. Whenever someone, I, I just want to say, no, let them cook. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll just quickly go over what I liked that wasn't previously covered, which is, as you say, the film is about a, a woman getting to tell her story. And I think that what I like about it as one of those air quotes based on a true event or based on true event story is that in contrast to a lot of the films that make that claim in many other instances I'm always sort of only half engaged with what I'm looking at because as I'm watching it I am constantly questioning okay but did that actually happen okay need to look that up later this definitely doesn't feel like it would have happened. Oh, that person sounds like they're a real asshole. I wonder how events were in real life. I can never wholly engage with films of that sort because I'm always thinking of the Wikipedia articles that I'm going to check out once I'm done with it. <laughs> and what I like about this in comparison with that is that the film is quite meta because it's weaving in and out a lot of the film is the book. Everything that we hear from Jessica Chastain is her narrator voice for the book. And it becomes this case of you're hearing the book get narrated to you, but you're also checking in with characters who are there after the book has been written and when they've read the book and you're hearing Idris Elba make comments on, like, I got to the part where whatever the previous scene was, and it carries this meta-awareness of exactly what I'm talking about, of the logistics of things like this, where you are asking, okay, but who are the people really? And Idris Elba calls her out on it and says, look, I have a pretty good idea who this character oh, yes. refer to is, and I'm pretty sure he didn't say poor people bagels. Yeah. Like, that is a good thing to cut through that semi-engagement that I'm talking about because it is lampshading the fact that, yes, we know that you are also questioning just how much of this is what we are claiming it to be. And it becomes this... It sounds so simple, but really something like... That is indicative of the approach that a lot of the film does that helps me to get move past that and to say that this does feel like it's gone through a few layers of consideration and from what I can tell watching it and then after the fact of researching it, it does feel like a lot of this was run past this person. So at the very least, we have a good idea that this is an accurate representation of this person's statement of the whole affair. And you can do what you want with that. This conversation was originally recorded on September 2nd of 2023. A few months before, I had watched, at my wife's recommendation, the 2009 sports drama The Blind Side. This is the kind of movie I don't usually watch, as I don't sports, but it was also based on a nonfiction novel, as well as on quote-unquote real-life events surrounding offensive linesman Michael Ower and the Tui family that allegedly adopted him as a child and encouraged his academic and athletic success. 
I enjoyed the movie more than I thought I would, though the movie was not without issues. I especially enjoyed Sandra Bullock as the female lead, who has always been a favorite actress and who went on to win an Oscar and a Golden Globe for this role. In August of 2023, Michael Ower filed a lawsuit alleging that Leanne and Sean Tui never actually adopted him, but instead created a conservatorship which gave them legal authority to make business deals in his name. He also alleged that the Tuis used their power as conservators to strike a deal that paid them and their two children millions of dollars in royalties from the blindside movie, while Ower received nothing. On top of that, he went on to say that even apart from the primary basis of the movie being based on a lie, there were many other aspects and dramatizations of the film that were outright false, such as Ower having a learning disability. The actual truth is that he was academically gifted, which is how he got into the school that allowed him to come into contact with the Tui family to begin with. Again, because I don't sports, I didn't come across the entirety of this story till after we recorded. But I bring it up as a counterpoint to things that I said and things Toby said about movies quote-unquote based on a true story. Both movies are dramatizations of the truth, and by their nature would have some fictional elements to engage audiences better. But the story behind Michael Ower would seem to strongly suggest that the blind side was a larger distortion of the truth, and the Tuies were fine with that propaganda being out there, because it made them look good. Given this, I should apply the same standard to Molly Bloom. The only reason I am hesitant is that The Blind Side is a movie about a real-world instance where the Tui family may well have taken advantage of a young black kid for personal gain many times over. Molly's Game is a story about a well-off white woman who abetted the appetites of far more powerful and wealthy men for personal gain, and then was fucked over by them and by the government. And more significantly, the movie, and therefore Molly, does not hold back on self-critique. She admits she made bad decisions, and in fact her desire to get into that life could be considered one huge bad decision. The emotional climax of this movie referenced earlier gets into how she herself feels guilty for lives she may have made worse, as well as her desire to not cause more damage, even if it further harms her. Molly's game may be PR control from a woman that will never have a normal life going forwards. I can't know for certain, as the very premise of the movie gets into how much she won't say about what actually happened. I want to believe it is more true than not, but I also wanted to believe elements of the blind side. The sign of a good story is when your audience emotionally engages with it. It is always made more complex when that story involves actual people, and the fact that Molly Bloom had input into the story only lends credence to the truth if Molly herself is willing to be bluntly truthful. I hope she was. Simultaneously, in accordance with that, it makes the whole... Because the opening statement is somewhat unusual, where it says, I have kept my name the same, but for reasons that will become apparent, I am keeping everyone else's names different. 
and you think, okay, well, that's probably going to be important. And then that becomes the emotional climax of her talking with Idris Elba and saying, why are you bending over backwards? Why are you doing so much to not give up people who have not done a single thing either now or throughout your entire life to rally to you? No one is rallying to you and yet you are holding firm. What is this? What do you owe them? And it becomes this thing of partly it is what we were touching on earlier of, oh, it's her name. And it's also not just her name. It's just her and her identity. But the reason that Idris Elba takes on the job in the beginning is that he asks her about like the names and she reasons that she's pretty sure that people will come after other people and it would ruin lives who aren't even really the people involved in it. It's the people okay. yeah. connected to them. And... So that's actually something that kind of bothered me about the movies. I know that like she kind of unintentionally got involved with the Russian mafia. So like she very specifically says she doesn't have any dirt on the Russian mafia because they will come and kill her. But here's the thing with the amount of rich people who aren't mobsters that she has dirt on, it is completely valid for her to be like, I just don't want that many rich people who have a grudge against me because they can just kill me. I mean, there's definitely... That is something to never bring up. Yeah. <laughs> there is definitely a potential element of that. Although, on the other hand, she could potentially cause enough chaos that they have bigger fish to fry. As I understood it, and this is just my reading, her choice to do what she did wasn't as much about self-preservation as, and this is something that Toby should be able to understand because it's a major component of New Century, the fallout and chaos that would come and the people, undeserving people that could be destroyed as a result of giving another powerful person, in this case, the men that run the government, all of this power to use all of the information she has. Remember, the reason why Jaffe decides to take her on is that she has all of this money that she's owed and refuses to sell her debt sheet because she's worried about who might be hurt if someone attempts to shake people down the way the mafia was intending to right before they beat her the fuck up. Mm -hmm. She is worried about other people more than she is worried about herself. She is willing to fall on her sword rather than all of the chaos and destruction she cannot control if she lets this information free. That's why I like her. I don't know if that's how the real world played out. She could be more selfish. Again, that is a problem with someone getting to tell their own stories and they get to paint the best version of themselves as well. But as a story... I am sympathetic to Molly's character. I was not at all. She's very privileged. <laughs> and she got herself into a giant fucking hole for no particular reason. I sit somewhere in the middle. And that makes us Spectrum. well balanced. It does, yeah. I can see it both ways, but I will not employ any more rhetoric associated with that because that well has become poisoned. Okay, so now we just have to put a little uh, a plank on top of you, and uh, Alejandra and I can seesaw back and forth on top of Toby. That got sexual. Let's. Um... Yeah. What's what was our agreed <laughs> safe word? Penny, Penny, Penny. <laughs> Toby, don't worry. I'll treat you gentle. <laughs>
I always know you will. Ooh, okay, yeah. Let's let's back off the fun flirting time. I got nothing else on this movie. There's good stuff about it, and it just pissed me off the parts mm. that I didn't like. <laughs> I, I don't have anything more. Uh, Greg, do you have anything more? No, I, I, I think we I think I've talked myself out as far as this is concerned. I think we've covered all of the things that I wanted to. But as discussed earlier, now that we've talked through three movies and that our various viewpoints on them, maybe we should actually take an opportunity to, you know, do the thing that we normally do and discuss with Alejandra her experience with being a voice for New Century. Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. What? <laughs> Never saw this coming. Oh, God. Such a right turn for this podcast. <laughs> so I know that, in particular, you were the voice of Senate in Panther Soul. I do not remember what other voices you have contributed I was guard Captain Deeth in uh, Stone Spring Maidens. Mm, I'm trying. No, that wasn't the one. Uh, that wasn't Captain Triss, the one that. It's the uh, one who delivers the people from. Ah, God, I can't. It is a very minor background character. It was okay. Alex letting me like try it out. Mm -hmm. He clearly had like a role to fill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I, I don't have anything interesting to say about Guard Captain D. When Alex offered me the character, I'm like, I have read this book. Who is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but, you, I, I, but you have you have five lines. I don't remember how many lines Senate has, although she was a very significant presence in Panther Soul. It's just that a lot of what Senate does is narrated rather than acted out. Um, yeah, it's actually wild. Senate only has like two lines. Mm -hmm. She she fills a very specific role in the court of Mog, in comparison to you know, the the victims or the people that teach things or you know just the names that fill out the rest of the party and never really do or say anything of significance. But Senate, I think we talked a little bit about the dynamics and the the people playing off against each other when we were discussing Star Dancer. For those few of you that might not have been listening to the Behind the White Scars interviews, I was seeing strong connections to character dynamics in Avatar The Last Airbender. But, moving on. I should say that um, I had not read Panther Soul when I was offered the role. Oh, okay. And I still... Like, I did not read more than my lines in order to get any context or really anything. I really just worked with the context Alex gave me for the character. Mm -hmm. And it's not a coincidence that you bring up Avatar because uh, Senate is uh, somewhat of a combination of Azula and Catra. Oh, yes. Yes, um, I remember someone else saying that, actually. Yeah, uh, Senate wants to be bad mm -hmm. because they've been convinced that that is the correct moral compass. You know, in the way that Catra recognizes that she's doing evil things, but is like, eh, whatever, it benefits me for at least a good two seasons of that show. Mm -hmm. And Azula also just fully bought into her dad's rhetoric about fascism, basically, mm -hmm. and was like, yeah, I'll, I, I can do a fascism. I can do a fascism real good, Daddy. Watch me do a fascism. <laughs> 
And there's like some element of self-protection, like, you know, it's better to be at the devil's side than at his path and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. I'm going to be very intrigued with if you can uh, work your way into a potential meteor role, because I'd like to see that for you. I love talking with you in general. I love listening to you talk. You did. A, <laughs> you, you, you talked about 200 movies for, you know, over an hour. And I think I just mentioned a second ago that I really like having people explain stuff to me and that's the thing that i love so alejandra uh, has one of the best voices on the discord and that's really nice of you to say because i have some dysphoria about it fair enough actually gonna gonna try and get into some uh voice training but i'm also adhd brain so Mm -hmm. i probably won't stick with it uh, all of our voices will evolve and shift and for people who have a vested interest in that they will happen even more so but all we can say is we love your voice and just in the same way that i think for greg uh listening to jessica chastain talk about poker listening to you talk about movies yeah i could have that as asmr absolutely (laughs) well i mean i i have some more thoughts about my voice actually because like you know i have a youtube channel going back a decade you can hear my voice fresh out of college at like 23 like, you can just hear that. That's a thing on the internet forever until I get sick of it. And, yeah, there is a tangible difference in my intonation between pre- and post-transition. It's not something that I've, like, put a lot of work into, but I am a little bit higher on the register. And um, Alex was quite happy with my Senate performance because, you know, Guard Captain Deeth, it was a fill-in role. Like, he didn't mind anything I did. Uh, he did give me a few pointers for the second line for Senate, where Senate says that she's going to... I shall sneak in when all have retired to rest and take this prize for you, my mother. And I kind like on my first take, because like I said, I didn't have context for this. I had Senate as a little bit more like um, schemey uh, in the in the intonation. That's just where I thought the character would be. But no, Alex, and you know, now that I've read the book, yeah, Alex is absolutely right. Senate's a true believer. She's just trying to impress her mother. Yeah. Watch me, mommy. He's watched me die like a, a very obscure reference to a X-Men comic. Also, please don't eat me um, because she's seen that, <laughs> yeah. that she will eat people that are no longer of use to her. And uh, Alex said that uh, he doesn't, uh, I, and you know, we were just talking about, I said, uh, I don't have a lot of range for uh, where my voice will be. It's all—it's almost always going to sound like me. But mm-hmm. I'm really good at putting character into my voice. And he says he prefers that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Surface level impression of places to take your voice will only take you so far. It's being able to inhabit character and to apply it and be in that space that will make your voice work. Because having done like a handful of cameos here and there for Alex, I'm very critical of mine. I always feel like Alex does it as a favor to uh, (laughs) us slash, well, Greg always does a much better job than me, but he definitely Um, does it as a favor to me. We're all, we're all self-deprecating little shits here. (laughs) Yeah, we are. (laughs) High five. (laughs) High five. I do my best. I have had some acting experience, but I'm never going to claim that I was all that good at it. The one thing that I had to overcome in order to do a podcast in general was getting used to how my voice sounds recorded. Because as we all know, when we're hearing our voice through our skulls, it sounds different to us 
and the microphone is if it's a good microphone well, in hey, theory guess um, what a podcast really helps with <laughs> yes exactly it helps getting used to the sound of your own voice and as the editor of this i really needed to be comfortable with that and i eventually I, did I, and I know exactly what you're talking about. I had the exact same experience in the early days of my YouTube channel. After about 10 episodes, I was over it. But I will say that if you do anything for New Century in the future, I hope that you've managed to play to your strengths, Alejandra, because based on all the stuff that I've watched of you so far, the two things that you're best talking about is when you put passion into your voice and when you're more than a little bit horny. <laughs> Those are not mutually inexclusive. <laughs> okay, Greg, I will take the compliment under advisement. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I, you know what? No. <laughs> I, there's nowhere Look, I can I don't go know what there. the age rating of this podcast is. Do you want me to talk about my tits? We're I'm Delta. very <laughs> proud of them. <laughs> We're not doing a podcast on your tits. I do realize that you... Beyond okay. the wind tits. I do realize that we technically got into interview mode here. We're no longer doing media analysis, but I, I can assure you that when I put this podcast onto Podbean, the uh, adult button is always checked. We're not X-rated here, but you know, uh, we don't shy away from adult issues. How Profanity. <laughs> I mean, I swear every now and then. I'm pretty sure that Profanity. Toby... I'm pretty sure that Toby has probably sworn more than I have on this podcast. What the fuck do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, you little bitch. What was that about? <laughs> anyway, Alejandra, thank you very much for rejoining us on this. As I said, I do have some more potential stuff in the pipeline that might involve other people coming on board. Possibly Chris. Definitely Kevin, if he gets his list together. Definitely Maureen. But that is going to require a lot more setup because it was going to require both her and Toby to finally rewatch everything everywhere all at once. But if you want to come back and discuss more movies, then we should put it on the docket. Yeah, I begrudgingly say that you're included on the short list, like the quick contacts list on our phones. Oh, man, and I haven't even given either of you my actual number. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm in a different country. I, like, you can, yes, but it's going to be expensive. I've actually tried to call across continental lines. Yeah. We have also, Discord. It's fine. Yeah, and I have it's phone fine. anxiety. I'm not good at calling people anyway. No, I'm. you call me. I'm like, what the fuck do you want? <laughs> Why did you give me an anxiety attack to give me a phone message? What is but going it's on worse here? when someone texts you and is like, hey, can I call you later? Because then your brain starts inventing all oh, these yeah. terrible scenarios. Yeah, hey, exactly. Guess... What, what, what can't you tell me by a text? <laughs> mm. Guess what my PTSD of the day that I was texted to come out of a class to uh, ring home and then be told that my father passed away filled me with dread about. It was my phone. Oh, boy. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Uh, well, that's a depressing uh, note on. That's a depressing yeah, note to Alejandro, end on. Quick, bring in some porny joke or something. Tell us about your tits. No. I am wearing the cutest goddamn sundress right now. Oh, it's so and cute. I'm definitely gonna wear it while I get fucked up against a counter at some point. Excellent. <laughs> okay that, then. <laughs> that's that's how we end our podcast. Good night, everybody. Good night. And that's it for another behind the window. Next time, we return to our assigned task of the Steamheart Retrospective. 
To close us out, I was looking for more music that would work with the discussions of New Century. And while I really like this song, I feel like some of the violent energy doesn't go well with New Century itself. But it does make me think of some of the movies we discussed, and the energy of a wolf woman forging her own path in the wild. So until next time, a song from League of Legends featuring Valerie Broussard, Awaken. The night beckons while you dream A life never lives in peace As you stand you do